I yearn for a world in which men of violence and the means that they want to use does not occupy the vast majority of where our brains and our lives are forced to go. And right now it feels like that's the case. Okay, a few inflection points in human history. From the French Revolution to the Napoleonic Code. From the American Revolution to the Declaration of Independence. From the American Civil War to the 13th Amendment. And one more, from World War I and II to the ratification of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Each of these inflection points encouraged us to see each other as individuals worthy of respect and life. Clearly, these documents were not entirely successful. That was Alan Winson, and I am Rebecca McCain. Today, we will have a conversation with three women writing about and demonstrating for universal human rights. You are listening to Bar Crawl Radio, recording from the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar, across the street from the mortuary, and a block and a half from the statue of Eleanor Roosevelt, who headed up the UN committee that wrote the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go! In 1948, all nations signed on to a document stating that the way a government treats its citizens can be judged by the rest of the world. This December 2023 is the 75th anniversary of the ratification of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. With us are three women who are going to help us understand the significance of the UDHR. Jackie Dugard studies how laws impact social change and justice, focusing on power and exclusion. She is a senior lecturer at Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights and an associate professor at the School of Law of Witts University in Johannesburg. Professor Dugard is an affiliate at the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice, co-founder and the first executive director of the Socioeconomic Rights Institute of South Africa. And with us is Jocelyn Getchen Kestenbaum. Uh, she is a human rights and public health scholar focusing on preventing sexual and gender-based crimes and slavery. She's an associate professor of clinical law and the director of the Benjamin B. Ferenz Human Rights and Atrocity Prevention Clinic and the Cardozo Law Institute in Holocaust and Human Rights at Yeshiva University. Deborah Sweet is the director of the Brooklyn-based World Can't Wait, which protested the Iraq War, exposed the torture of prisoners at Guantanamo and other U.S. prisons, and opposes military recruiters coming to high schools and colleges. Welcome all to Barkwa Radio. Hey, it's Thanks great for to be here. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks the United Nations 1948 Human Rights Declaration came out of the horrors of World War II. So what was this desire after World War II? to establish a document that listed basic human rights. The previous this international is law Dugard. system based on reciprocity between states um, and diplomacy really was not working and had 
grossly failed to stop um, the rise of Nazism and a recognition that a new system was necessary to try to bring out, if we can call it, the better angels in people and try to assert a system of universal human rights uh, with some sort of monitoring system as well that would in some ways supersede supremacy of states. I mean, I'll just add that I think that the... Jocelyn. Thank you, Jocelyn. I I think the scale, the, the horrors of the Holocaust and World War II and the visibility, the fact that we had video and the entire world could bear witness to the horrors of World War II also gave this ability for the global community could come together to say we could never have this happen again. It's not that it hadn't happened before and it's not that it hasn't happened after and we can also talk about those failures but the UDHR was a watershed moment I think for the global community to say we don't want this to happen in our backyards or anywhere that you know, democracy, justice, accountability are values that we hold dear. And just imagine now when we're seeing the war instantaneously live it, 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 from it, all parts yeah, of the globe. Yeah, it's almost I unbearable. I could just speak to that question, yeah. Alan. This is Deborah from maybe a, a historical context. If you look at leading up to World War II, that was the era of the British Empire dominating the world for centuries, really. And a whole colonial setup that was dramatically shaken up by the Second World War. And then you have the US rising as the, at that time, the rising imperialist power, the UN being set here, terms being set differently that we're going we're gonna to go at dominating the world in a different way with a different rubric. I am not entirely cynical about the content of this document at all. And we certainly need humanitarian and moral values. But it, it's a lot of a whitewash job, man, I got to say. Could I, this is Jackie, could, yeah. I, could I say that the obvious thing to say, I think, and, and, and linking to Deborah's point, is the fact that many, particularly African states, were simply not states. Mm-hmm. They were not independent. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they have never um, signed onto, specifically onto the declaration, because at the time, 1948, they were still colonies. So that is the first thing one has to say, if we talk about it being a universal document. Uh, we have to always have that caveat that many, many countries on earth were not countries at that time because of British and other forms of colonialism. And certainly that gets to kind of our last question, which will be about what do we need to do and what was the problems with the issues then. But I wanted to kind of focus on what was going on in 1946, 47, Mm -hmm. I guess 47, 48, when it was being developed, Um, that not all countries, in order to have a universal declaration of human rights, you need to have everyone agreeing, but that wasn't easy to do historically. Uh, there were disagreements at the time. I, I, I read that the Soviet representative didn't always go along with it, with the Western representative. Can you talk about that, That a, a, the difficulty of getting consensus, and eventually there was a consensus? It seems to me, and I don't know the history, as well as my two colleagues here who are um, really acquainted with 
the law, and, and I am a graduate of leaving university at 18 to stop the Vietnam War. So my experience is much more on the street and um, being involved in actual fights for people's rights. But I think it's, it's all politics. A lot of it is who has more power at a particular moment. And, and look, we got to reckon with the fact that it was the U.S. that had the bomb and had just used it. Oh my God, does that have any impact on what people agree to or not? I think it does. Yeah. It absolutely does. And I would say that at that time, when we were coming out of a world war where more civilian casualties were, you know, experienced. It's the first time that civilians and civilian targets were the object mm -hmm. of destruction mm -hmm. in wars as well. And so a lot of countries were at the mercy of those who were the allied powers who had come out on top uh, after dropping bombs and really serious campaigns in, in war. So we do have sort of a victor's justice in some ways after World War II. That said, the world community at that time did want to instill some values, and you do see different states engaging, maybe not agreeing, but engaging to ensure that their values and, and not just a Western sort of victor's justice is an instituted in the global world order that we you know, now see that we're experiencing maybe a, at the end of this era of global power. But we have to recognize that the world at that time was a Western one with the worldview of Western states dominating. And so what we see in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is really the reflection of those Western values. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. I now instituted my students to say, what is the Western gaze? Can you always think about how at the time that these documents were being developed, who was at the table, who had the power, who was setting the, the rules of the game, and who was not, who was excluded. Right. And, and that's what we can see from this document. And not only the Western powers were at the table, so you do also see some very important, I think, uh, institution of values that we can now draw upon and we can use to push forward and improve the situation on the ground in many contexts in yeah. terms of human rights. Um, I wanted to just take one small step back to answer your question about disagreement at the time because it is true and it, I think it's important to say that it's a declaration, it's not binding, it's not a treaty, it's not binding but it is the only universal declaration. Nobody rejected it, no state that was constituted at the time rejected it. We can't imagine that today, mm -hmm. um, right today as we speak. We can't imagine such unanimity. But it should be said that eight states abstained. Those states included my country, uh, which at the time was the Union of South Africa, for obvious reasons, because in 1948, South Africa was an apartheid state. So it abstained. Saudi Arabia abstained, and then the USSR bloc abstained. So that was all of the Soviet Socialist Republics um, and the USSR itself. They all abstained. But I think nonetheless, um, you know, going to Jocelyn's point, nonetheless we were able to get, we, 
they were able to get into the Declaration very important socioeconomic rights principles, which uh, subsequently have, and at the time, were being more championed by socialist states than by the U.S. and Western states. So I think that is an important legacy. So um, in her essay, Making Human Rights Come Alive, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote that idealistic documents carry no weight unless the people know them, unless the people understand them, unless the people demand they be lived. So let's try to understand the UDHR as it exists today. What does it call for in general? And I'd like if you could each choose your favorite declaration article um, that you think is especially important or, or to you personally. I gotta be as simple as possible. I don't know this document inside and out. I've certainly referenced it. But just the basic moral point of Article One that all human beings have certain rights and it opens up the possibility that we could have a society where the interests of humanity were really reflected and protected by states. And, and that's the big rub. I also think probably now Article One wouldn't just be about brotherhood. Yeah, so for me, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights foundationally is about human dignity. It's about individuals and groups being able to coexist with dignity equally and without discrimination. And then there are very specific guarantees of both civil and political rights, which we used to call negative rights, but I don't think that the dichotomy really with positive rights uh, reflects the reality anymore. Mm. But civil and political rights on the one hand, economic, social, and cultural rights on the other hand, and I think we're not even there to realize fully all of the panoply of rights that we have in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Because of the Western gaze, it is very individualistic how we implement this document these days. But you can see there are socioeconomic and cultural rights, which are group-based rights. And if we really want to think about equality and the way in which our world is so divided right now, we have to focus also on the rights of collectives to exist and to exist alongside other collectives. So for me, I'd like to also echo the Article 1, which is equality. Um, and I think it is this fundamental idea that all humans have the same value. And I think, you know, now particularly at the moment, uh, you know, we have to think about that in the context of the war on Gaza and on the civilians who are being killed there. and the value of those lives that are being lost. I think it's so important. But I wanted to mention one frontier, which I think is um, one which we need to be moving forward on. We've made some limited progress in terms of status rights, in terms of better equality, especially in the workplace, on racial grounds, on gender grounds. By no means have we nailed it. There's a long way to go on. Um, gender uh, and sexuality, on, on soggy rights, etc. But I think where we really haven't made much progress is on socioeconomic inequality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you see this in a world that is increasingly unequal. You have billionaires and you have the world so divided in terms of socioeconomic status. So 
I would like to suggest that that's the frontier we need to work on the most in terms of the equality principle, trying to understand inequality as a human rights violation um, and looking at ways to alleviate that, whether it's through redistribution, taxation, etc. So for me, that's really the, the challenge that the UDHR puts out. If a country were to violate one of the 30 precepts of the UDHR, can they be prosecuted? Can the UN you know, national force go in and say, you can't do that to your citizens? What is the enforceability of the UDHR right now? No, it's not a legally binding document. So it's a vision. It's an, it's an idea of a moment in time, as we've been talking about, where people felt, let's try to go for a better system. Let's think of a better way. Um, so it is a vision. It is not in any way legally binding. Some, however, some of its principles on non-discrimination, prohibition on slavery, um, have become what's called customary international law, which makes them binding. But um, when you were saying that this is the, the instrument that, it, that the UN uses, in the human rights sphere, the main instruments are the treaties, which are legally binding, but then your state must have ratified them. And the two big ones are the International Covenant on um, uh, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Okay. How is it at all effective if it's not binding? Um, is, is there anything about the fact that you carried a, a book in here, Jackie, which has the 30 on it and and you can get copies of it they'll the un will send it out for free i assume um well, does it have any effect on its own may, may i share just one example which yeah. is that and, and and i don't think that visions and imaginaries and utopian ideals are to be discounted i think it is extremely extremely important to imagine a different way and i always think about a community worker in detroit who told me she gives out these these uh, copies of the book to people in Detroit in her work with welfare organizations where the people say, oh, now we understand that human beings somewhere in the world have a value. We may not feel it in Detroit living in an extremely marginalized community, but somewhere in the world there is a vision of a better life. Mm -hmm. I think it has value. Yeah, and you know, I always teach students about the International Bill of Human Rights. and. It's really the tripartite structure of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and then the two treaties that derive their articles from this very document. And so together, all three of those documents sort of work in tandem to protect the civil, political rights, economic, social, and cultural rights that make up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Did it start the conversation? It did. It absolutely did. Uh, the treaties took a little longer to negotiate because of their binding nature, and they took until 1966. And by then, we were in the midst of a Cold War, and there was a lot of disagreement about that division of political civil rights on the one hand and economic, social, and cultural rights on the other, and that's why we have two separate treaties. So some states could sign one, other states could sign the other, some states signed both and, and commit to all of these rights that are fundamentally enshrined in the Universal Declaration. But to get back to, I mean, this is 100% the UDHR was meant to be the first step, and then it was meant to be followed by one binding treaty. Unfortunately, as Jocelyn said, the Cold War intervened and we had to have two. But 
it is it's not only that some of the articles happen to end up in those treaties no it 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 was the first logical step let me see if i got it right there there then are nine binding treaties yes okay all right just for instance just to give some you you've given some instances already treaties on racial discrimination mm-hmm. on women's rights mm-hmm. torture migrant workers rights and there's others um, Wait, the U.S. <coughs> signed on to all that? No. No, no, no. I'm gonna, I'm, <laughs> Hell many, no. Many of them. There we go. So we're, we're, we're all learning Three. here, Deborah, right? Three. We're going to get there, Deborah, right, so, for sure. So yeah. one is a treaty on the right on the human rights of children. So I want to just focus on that. Human right. on, so the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which every country on earth has ratified except the USA. Can you explain that? I believe that it has to do with um, some states in the U.S. um, wanting parents to have certain powers over their children. That is my understanding. I mean, some of the argumentation that's made by the United States is that these rights already exist constitutionally or state by state. There's no need for this treaty. That sounds a little bit like, excuse me, bullshit. That doesn't resonate with my, me either because it would be easy then to sign a treaty that yes, you already easier. commit to. But there are definitely certain uh, treaties and after a certain point in time, the United States just decided they would not be signing and ratifying treaties. It's very unfortunate because as a global power, it generally can engage and then ultimately reject the final treaty and not ratify. As a global leader, it absolutely undermines the credibility and the leadership of the United States in the world. May I posit that the United States doesn't want to give up any power at all to anybody and wants to remain at the top of the heap? May I posit that a majority of the people in the world seem to feel that the United States is the biggest danger to world peace? Notwithstanding that they've signed on to things, but the danger exists in that power and that refusal to cede that power and to spread it. And look who their allies are. Israel, Saudi Arabia, let's go down the list. The same powers that don't want to cede that. I'm not being cynical. This is a very, very important dynamic struggle. And Jackie's point about having concepts and goals and really, again, a morality that humanity could go for is essential. We have to be able to dream and imagine a society where these things are possible. I think U.S. exceptionalism is a a real problem. Um, And as Jocelyn said, it does undermine the U.S.'s influence in the world. I think increasingly you're seeing again, a very divided world where the U.S. and one or two allies on one side and then the rest of the world is coming out of alignment because it sees the hypocrisy um, and it sees human rights, unfortunately, as part of some foreign policy uh, mandate which hasn't turned out well for many countries. So it is unfortunate um, and particularly, I will say, for Americans, it is unfortunate that socioeconomic rights are not validated in the U.S. because so many Americans live in completely marginalized lives without basic human rights, which are recognized in the rest of the world, including in my country, South Africa, like the right to housing, uh, the right to an adequate standard of living, etc., etc. 
Okay, so what are the human rights issues that plague our world today that you would like to address? Well, I can tell you that the, the human rights clinic in which I work is one that focuses on the prevention of mass atrocities, including genocide, crimes against humanity, and uh, war crimes, the crime of aggression included, I guess, also in those atrocities. And our focus has been on the various colonial crimes that we see that still continue today. Mm -hmm. Genocide is one of them. I think the U.S. also has not acknowledged its sordid past with atrocities happening in, within the context of the United States against indigenous peoples, against uh, African, people of African descent. And so we focus a lot on those particular crimes and human rights violations that are happening today. For instance. Yeah, yeah, for instance. So a lot of the work that we're doing is on accountability and justice for slavery and the slave trade, both prohibitions under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Many narratives of global narratives would suggest that the UK was successful in uh, prohibiting slavery, that we have abolition, that we don't have to worry about the slave trade anymore. Some folks talk only about reparations for past slavery crimes, but we see that slavery and the slave trade are still very, very real, still happening all over the globe. In Can you Yemen. talk about that? Because I'm sure that a lot of people don't, even, don't have no idea. Yeah, we see it in Libya, for example, with migrants who are fleeing violence or economic, uh, you know, uh, abject poverty and other economic harms. They come through Libya and are tricked into detention and then are literally sold on slave blocks, slave traded into uh, agriculture and other manual labor, uh, not to mention sex, uh, sla sexual slavery and other forms of uh, servitude. And then we had ISIS very recently mm -hmm. enslave uh, the Yazidi population among mm -hmm. others and our clinic has been working for over 10 years now on justice and accountability in various venues across the globe for the, that particular group of individuals, mostly women and children. The men were uh, forcibly recruited into ISIS or killed while the women were enslaved, slave traded as part of the caliphate uh, of ISIS. So it's still very real. It's still something that happens. And so our goal is to bring visibility to these various issues that are still very much real, that especially are erased. And they're erased by convenience for the global powers because then the UK can't really say that abolition was successful, can't really point to that you know, win, human rights win in, in the global community, or the US you know, can't really deny that slavery, slave trade isn't still a problem and the need for reparations, not only for past enslavement, but current enslavement is paramount. Can I just say, it's also a race, by the way, our news media covers it, because right now we're inundated with the horrors in Gaza, and all that you're talking about, Jocelyn, is really ignored from, from, a, from, a, from a media perspective. So it's a race that way, too, right? We have a short attention span mm. for global issues. I, I feel like because I work in a clinic that doesn't have to necessarily move with the news or 
Um, the funding isn't dependent necessarily on whether or not I can get that grant that everyone wants to put attention to certain uh, you know, contexts in the world. Ukraine, for example, uh, I'm not working in Ukraine. Is it a very serious issue? Absolutely. Are there a lot of atrocities happening there? Yes. But there are lots of people and lots of funding going there, right there at this moment. But in the Amazon jungle, where I work as well, on land grabs for indigenous populations, no one is there protecting those lands, protecting those individuals. And I see you know, climate justice and environmental justice as really important for our global survival as well. And so that's really what I'm trying to do is bring attention to issues that aren't necessarily on the world stage. Can anyone else address this idea of, of human right issues that are plaguing our world today? I'll speak to one that I, I know Alan is interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been working on the U.S. torture camp at Guantanamo since 2002, and we're coming up on the 22nd anniversary of it being opened. You make the point in World Can't Wait, your organization, that it's over 8,000 days in which some of these men have been incarcerated. We just passed that. And, you know, talk about what people in this country know. All a lot of people know is that Barack Obama came to the presidency saying he was going to close it. So everyone was going to close it, except Trump wants to expand it. It hasn't happened, and there are still 31 men there, 16 of which who have been already cleared for release. It's meaningless, because the U.S. has not been able to or chosen to coerce any other country in taking the 16 who have been cleared, they're mostly Yemenis. They can't go home to Yemen. To me, this is not only an issue about those lives, which are incredibly important as individuals, but this is just an indication that the rule of law doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything when you have the power to set up a torture camp and make that an example to the rest of the world that there is not a way you can get out. We can't put you on trial because we tortured you. And even the US military attorneys and the judge who are supposed to carry out further trials on people allegedly involved with 9-11 are saying we can't do this trial because you tortured at least two people and we have the evidence on that. So this is freedom and democracy in action by the most powerful country with the biggest military in the history of the world. And spread out from there and, and all the people. You know, just at a program the other night, a, a young African-American woman said, I know we're talking a, a lot about Gaza, but I'm hearing about the Sudan right now and the Congo. Yeah the right. worst humanitarian crisis on this globe right now. Yeah, and it's all really created by this imperialist system. Yeah, so I, I wanted to pick up in terms of what I think is the, the area that needs work at the moment and that I'm most interested in working on is something that Jocelyn mentioned and it has to do with um, the climate catastrophe and I think mm -hmm. all of these yes. things actually yes. come together and converge because all of the systems of oppression whether they be imperialism, capitalism, uh, patriarchy all converge in the climate emergency and I think this is a moment where 
I come back to the article of the UDHR on equality. I think the idea that we should, that there is enough, there is abundance of resources if we could only just redistribute and mm -hmm. share and not hoard and grab and exploit and extract um, and uh, have these vast unsustainable differences between the global north and the global south and between rich and poor within countries. And I think it is going to result in some hard uh, choices for people, the haves, the people in the global north, for example, are going to have to stop consuming as much. Um, I don't know how we get out of the climate emergency I can still have my that. beer, yes. <laughs> beer is, beer is exempt. Beer is exempt. Thank you, thank you. It's not glass, that's okay. reusable. But as for your hammer, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so I think, I think this is a moment where all of these struggles really come together and come back down to sensibilities and visions that have actually been pursued in indigenous communities like in the Amazon, where people have a much more um, ecologically sensitive way of living not extractive, not exploitative, try to use what they need and not more. And I think this is where the new visionaries are going to have to come from. Yeah, and talk about some of the limitations of the Universal Declaration. We didn't have indigenous populations at the table uh, at the formation of that very important but limited document because it is, there's a whole different world value system that is about relationship and reciprocity with and sharing and about yeah exactly and about the idea that in seven generations we want to leave the earth the way that we have it now or better and with that mentality with that value system that is really where we need to go for climate justice but it's not enshrined in the current international human rights system as such. There is the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, also a declaration, not a binding instrument. But if you can superimpose the framework of values and rights and visions of a different way that we can all be living in relationship to the earth and other living and non-living organisms and biodiversity and all of the things, then we might be able to realize human rights. Because without the environment, we really can't talk about the rights that we have as human beings, right? Yeah. We, we really wouldn't be able to have a right to life without I think the this, planet. This gets us back to what you were talking about, the individual versus the collective. And I think one of the, the missteps that has been taken in terms of an, the hegemonic system is the focus on the individual and um, not on the collective, the community, Deborah's and going, me, me, me. the environment. Um, and I think this is, and it also, you see, it hasn't served people well. Um, if you look at one of the most brilliant books that I've ever read, and I highly recommend it to everybody who's listening, it's called The Spirit Level, Why Equality is Better for Everyone. Um, it's by two British epidemiologists, and they show in epidemiological terms, in other words, not you know, artsy-fartsy language, but basically the correlations very clearly between inequality and all social evils, including violence, um, crime, etc., etc., etc. So you only have to look. It's quite clear. You look at the most equal countries on earth. They're also the countries where you have the least violent crime, where you have the best life expectancy, etc., etc. One could go on. So I think this idea of us focusing on doing things for the for the community, for the for the for the collective good rather than the individual good is is the way to go. You know, the more I th think about this. I, I realize this is a very complex issue, but it's really very simple. 
Very simple. And you just you just said it, Jackie. We need to be for each other. I we mean, need to care about each I other. I mean, if we did that, we wouldn't need any of this and conversation. And that includes animals, non-living things, That's right. living, all living things. And another book that I force my students to read in the summer before they enter the clinic is Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh-huh. It's a yeah. really beautiful book, beautifully written. She's a botanist, also an indigenous woman. And her idea is about infusing science with indigenous worldviews, cosmovisions, and values. And that book traces and goes through relationship and reciprocity in ways that are really easy, easy to understand and then easy to then think about how you would incorporate that into your own life. And students, when they come into the clinic then, are critical about all of these documents and looking for ways that they can instill and infuse other worldviews. We talk about universal. Well, in the clinic that I'm running, we talk about pluriverse, Mm. that there are lots of different ways to hold values and and live, and we have to have respect for all of them, but have to also equally value the alternative ways, because if not, we are all going to be walking as as a, one of a, as a really amazing human rights advocate once said to me we're all running to the precipice with fur coats taking selfies <laughs> and if we want to avoid that we need to start valuing other worldviews We recently spoke with Paul O'Brien head of Amnesty International USA at a fundraiser for Group 11 the New York City-based Amnesty International affiliate. One of the core human rights issues with which Amnesty International is concerned is the prisoner of conscience. I asked Paul O'Brien to name one prisoner of conscience he is thinking about. The one I'm thinking about most right now, Nargis Mohammadi, um, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, Today, her husband in France received uh, the Nobel Peace Prize on her behalf. Um, but she still is in an Iranian jail for uh, her courage to speak truth to power in that context. And I yearn for the day when she walks free and can rejoin her family. I want to ask this question. And, and I want BCR Radio to have your views on what's happening right now in Hamas, with the Hamas and the Israeli Defense uh, Force, are they in violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Massively on both sides, of course. Massively. Hamas is not a force for liberation. If they take power, you'll have another Islamic Republic like you have in Iran. But look, they're not the main danger. The main danger is Israel's weapons. Israel's creation of a, not just a prison, but really a declaration that human rights do not apply to the 15 million Palestinians on the globe and the 8 million who are in Palestine. So I have to put the onus there on Israel and its determinations at every point that you can have a whole, two generations now of residents of Gaza who have never been able to leave, who can't get out, and now can't even get out when they're being bombed, and who is the daddy 
behind all of this. It's the U.S. military, the U.S. government, the weapons manufacturers. That's where all of this sits and why we have such a huge responsibility to be on the streets and in every other way opposing that right now. We recently uh, spoke with Paul O'Brien, head of Amnesty International USA, and we asked Paul about um, Amnesty International's position on the Gaza conflict, and I wanted to play his response now. AI's stance on what's going on in Palestine, Gaza, and Israel now. I mean, can you make a well, quick you, statement? Well, you, you gave us an easy one. Essentially, what our stance is, is that all of the human rights perpetrators uh, human, the violators of international humanitarian law um, have to be held to account. That starts in the most recent incarnation with October 7 and Hamas and the war crimes that they committed. But the way that the government of Israel is now prosecuting the war is, in our view, evidence of war crimes, and they also need to be held to account. It is the role of the United States, I believe, to be a champion of human rights on all sides. So we would like to see the Biden administration and Congress do more to hold all parties accountable for their human rights obligations. Any comments? What you are referring to really is uh, international humanitarian law. So this is slightly separate. Humanitarian law is the law of war. And mm -hmm. the whole that, that precedes World War II. So that actually precedes the international human rights system. Um, and the idea is protection of civilians um, and so when one applies the rules in humanitarian law you see multiple violations at the moment I'm afraid in terms of sieges, uh, blockades and sieges preventing water, uh, fuel, food, uh, emergency supplies, that is a war crime. Uh, you see um, disproportionate killings of civilians, um, lack of the two key principles which are proportionality and distinction, distinguishing between civilians and military targets. Um, so uh, and attacks on hospitals. There are certainly very grave uh, war crimes occurring at the moment. So one of my dear friends, the late and very great Benjamin B. Ferenz is the namesake of our clinic. He uh, died at the ripe old age of 103, and very recently, and his mantra was law, not war. And he always said to, to the students whenever he had an opportunity to speak with them, that you can't kill an ideology with a gun. We are so far into this conflict that we have another generation of individuals who will come and, and, and bear arms and fight against the other side. And so another generation of those who have fought and are now traumatized. And that is, for me, the most unfair aspect of, of, of what's happening right now is that this is not resolving what we really need to think about, which is how do we live together and how do we go forward together? And that, that infighting and, and, and the absolute destruction right now of Gaza is, I think, creating another generation where we can't see peace. Yeah. And unfortunately, one of the key determinants there is U.S. backing. I mean, I speak as a South African who grew up mm -hmm. under apartheid South Africa. We heard so many similar arguments amongst white South Africans saying, you don't understand, we're surrounded, we'll be obliterated. Um, it never happened. We were forced, people said there can never be a solution. It's not possible. We were forced into a solution when sanctions were applied. Uh, and then we suddenly could find a solution. And we now have a one country state. And 
but it's only because I believe the liberation struggle, of course, but also sanctions. Now, I feel, I fear that while the U.S. continues to economically support Israel, they will not be forced into a situation where, as you say, Justin, you need a political solution. A military solution will never work. Mm -hmm. But Deborah, I know this is probably an area you work on. I was out on the streets in the 70s and 80s protesting apartheid in South Africa and acutely aware of the U.S. role. And it actually did make some difference that students were on the street internationally and here. In, a huge difference. In, in changing what the U.S. government could get away with. And I think now we're in a similar situation where we have a lot of, including a lot of young Jews with, with much spirit who were saying, like, never again really means never again to anybody. Not just to our people, whoever they are, but our people are also Palestinians. And that kind of struggle, even to get these, this document, looking back at why those treaties were signed in 1966, had to do with the somewhat successful liberation struggles in countries of Africa that finally, at least officially, got out of the colonial designation and then now there's neo-colonial neo oppression, but there is independence. And all of those kind of actions from the people are what essentially change things, that change the governments and give the governments compulsion to make these changes. So that's what I've spent my life working on. Well, one of the offshoots of the Gaza conflict is the question of uh, free speech and what we can say about it and what's accepted. Now recently three Ivy League uh, university presidents defended the right of their students to say horrendous things and they were called on the carpet for it by Elisa Stefanik uh, of, of, of the Congress. Yeah, I mean this is really a complex and complicated issue. So from a legal standpoint, I feel like they were coached well by their lawyers. And generally, although I definitely think calling for genocide is making that step toward act, so um, contextually it is a difficult question, but right then and there was a failure, from my point of view, on moral leadership by those presidents and leaders. At that moment, it was about morally what is right. And I think standing up and saying it's not okay to say those things. Yes, we have free speech. You can say a lot of things that are hateful and hurtful. You cannot incite violence. That's where we draw the line in this country. It's a, it's a line that's drawn actually a lot further than in other countries that wouldn't tolerate uh, certain speech that was hateful toward a particular group. But I think hate speech is something that we really do need to care about much, much more in this country because anti-Semitism is up 300 and something percent. Mm. And, and that doesn't negate also the anti, um, you know, Islamophobia, Islamophobia yeah. and anti-Arab hate that is also on the rise. And so I think we do need to really care about this, but it's also a question of moral leadership. We need to stand up. We need to talk about these things. We need to have these hard discussions. We need to have different points of view be hashed out in the public sphere. It's really difficult, I think, when all of these fights go on social media 
where people can hide behind computers, hide behind their devices, and say things that do incite to violence without a lot of repercussions. So we do need that public square yeah. still for that debate yeah, we need, discussion. We need more bars with beer where people are <laughs> sitting down and, and talking about these things rather than yelling at each other. I mean, I think one of the problems, if I can speak from uh, someone from a different country, is indeed the thing that Jocelyn put her finger on, that in the US, the bar is actually too high. Um, in other words, you can say too much legally in the US, I would say, and that I've learned from the South African context where we have a horrible racial history past, that we limit free speech. We don't allow um, much more forms of speech uh, that are allowed here. And I think that because there is such a wide allowance here, people then self-police. And then you get these informal systems of silencing or of policing, which I think creates a problem. If there were actually a lower formal bar and legal bar, I think we could get along, we could talk within very clear parameters, not in an insightful uh, way, not in a racist or supremacist way, etc. I think the emphasis here is the word talk. Yes. Have a conversation. Yes. Rather than harangue. But I gotta speak to the venue where this discussion took place last week. How the heck did a Republican fascist majority in the House get to bring in three female Ivy League presidents and set them up in an impossible situation? Elise Stefanik doesn't give a you-know-what about anti-Semitism. That wasn't the point. The point was to undermine the credibility of at what I would equate to the Weimar in Germany. It was to uh, undercut the credibility of those voices for democracy and liberal discussion. And they went after her and they were unfortunately successful in the case of UPenn, not in the case of Harvard. And people got to stand up and speak out against that. We, we do not want Islamophobia nor anti-Semitism. What we want is an end to this injustice. All right, can we apply this analysis to human rights in the United States? Which I think we've been doing. Yes. Let's just go one more step. Let's go further with this. Can civil liberties, the right to vote and free speech, be addressed without also solving the problems in this country of wealth inequality, lack of access to clean water, lack of adequate housing, unemployment in poor neighborhoods, unequal education opportunities, and so on. What is the U.S. grade on human rights? There is actually a socioeconomic rights frontier index. It's called the SURF index, and the U.S. scores extremely badly, one of the worst countries in the world, because it has the most amount of resources, and it does the least with them in terms of socioeconomic rights. So it scores very, very poorly. I knew Jackie was going to know that. She nailed it. <laughs> I would say for the number of resources that this country has, it is absolutely failing in its ability to guarantee, protect, and fulfill human rights. And that is civil and political human rights, as well as economic, social, and cultural human rights. And I would say no in answer to your question, Becky. You can't have the superstructure of political rights if it isn't based on the base of people having literally enough to eat. 
So we need a new socialist society that would really deliver human needs. 100%. And we should also, though, not forget that there are grave civil and political rights violations as well in the U.S. Does the UDHR remain effective today? What's missing? Uh, we asked Paul O'Brien that, and he responded. Would you like it to was hear? a moment of great global consensus that all of the conditions for living with dignity matter, and we should celebrate and continue to stay loyal to the fact that 200 countries came together. And did it talk about climate change? No. Did it understand that we need to live in not just a non-discriminatory world, but an anti-racist world? No. Did it celebrate the family but fail to understand the importance of protecting LGBTQI rights? No. So it, it was a document of its time, but for its time, it made an immense contribution, and we should celebrate that. From my perspective, yep. there were a lot of folks who were not at that table mm. when the Universal Declaration was you know, debated, discussed, and then eventually signed or voted upon. Um, so my goal in the clinic is to look through in what we call an intersectional lens. So thinking about identity groups, those who were not at the table, mostly mo a lot of women, uh, children, elderly, disabled, uh, indigenous, those who are you know, the marginalized in society and still suffer from multiple intersecting forms of oppression. And think about how we center their voices now, today, in their struggles for the basic rights that we ideally want to be implementing uh, through the Universal De Declaration and all of those human rights instruments we talked about that have come uh, in its wake. And so for me, it's about thinking about who wasn't at the table and how do we get their voices and their issues front and center. Mm -hmm. Deborah? Well, the wrong people are in power, but it isn't the individuals, it's the wrong system. As long as you have capital dominating everything and making these decisions, you cannot have rights for human beings, individual or collective groups. You just can't. That's why I'm a revolutionary, and I say that it is possible we do not have to live this way. There's nothing inherent in the human brain or human society that says those who have the capital can run everything. Yep, I would have to agree with that and say that, you know, some of the blind spots in the UDHR, because it was a document of its time, are, as Jocelyn had alluded to, a lack of a mentioning of climate justice. And then much more firmly entrenching social justice as the narrative. Um, so, and I wanted to end on a, we've done a bit of US bashing. I think it's necessary as a superpower and that's what I always talk to my students about. This is the most powerful, richest country. So we mm -hmm. hold it to a higher standard maybe. But I would like to say that coming from a different country quite recently to the US, I am just every day amazed by the energy and the activism of young people. Mm -hmm. And I think that the UDHR is something that speaks to them in terms of this visionary document about a different way. And I think I see that every single day in my students. And I would like to posit that US activism and particularly the youth are just on another level in terms of emancipatory ideas, in terms of empowerment, in terms of activism and hope. We want to really thank you. Um, I got a lot out of this conversation, and I want to thank you three for, for, for joining us today at, at our favorite bar. <laughs> thank, thank you, you for, for having, having us. us. Okay, take a picture.
We have been talking with three women who have dedicated their careers to thinking about and fighting for our basic human rights. Always a human problem. How do we exit our caves and begin to see each other as equals, fully responsible for each other's welfare? We live together on a single lifeboat, which is sinking under the weight of our selfish actions and inhuman behavior. You're listening to Bark Roll Radio Podcast, and we want to thank Jackie Dugard of Columbia University's Institute for the Study of Human Rights, Deborah Sweet, Head of World Can't Wait, and Jocelyn Getchen Kestenbaum, Director of the Benjamin B. Ferenz Human Rights and Atrocity Prevention Clinic, for joining us today. Music for this program was recorded at the 48th Annual Benefit Concert for Amnesty International's Group 11 on Sunday, December 10, 2023, at Christ and St. Stephen's Church. Clara Chow performed Veiled for Cello and Electronics, composed by Nilofer Norbosh. And let's complete this conversation on human rights with an idea from Paul O'Brien of Amnesty International who have center stage right now are men of violence. And I say men, not uh, mainly men of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I yearn for a world in which what we talk about and think about and value is not dictated by them. 